0: what is the big deal with sin? That word almost does not have a definition. And you think, what is the big deal? Why is God angry about sin? And the problem with sin is that It destroys. It destroys people's lives. Sin destroys families. And sin destroys nations. Now, chapter 21 here is one of these places in the Bible that actually shows us the gospel, how God deals with sin. And he deals with sin in justice and grace. God sends somebody special who can deal with God and deal with men. And make a mess right. Now, we're going to look at that, but there's two things in this chapter that do not seem related. And sometimes this stuff stumps me as I figure out, why are there two things in this chapter Why is it more difficult than it needs to be? But there is a relationship. So I want you to stick with me as we look at this entire chapter. Because the other part of this chapter is that David is that special Messiah. He is anointed of God. He's unique and irreplaceable. And yet... David's men imitate him. And they find that they can do the same things that David does because they're following him as he follows the Lord. So if you imitate a man of God, you're going to walk with God. Those are the two things we're looking at in this chapter. So I'm reading in 2 Samuel 21. It says, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, we will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, whatever you say, I will do it for you. Then they answered the king, as for the man who consumed us and plotted against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, Let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. So this chapter begins with God getting David's attention. And he does it by causing a famine for three years. And we look at that and say, what? That doesn't seem a very direct way to communicate, does it? God could easily send an angel like he sent to Mary. David had prophets on staff. Any number of which could have brought him a message of the Lord and have done so in the past. But God chooses a slow, indirect way to speak to David. Isn't that interesting? It's about an incident that happened years and years ago. And God chooses this slow, indirect way. To get David's attention. And he does it by really destroying the harvest. It's not a good year. We didn't get that much food. That means we're in trouble. There's not enough to eat. Now, you hope you don't have another year like that, but here comes another one. And you go, oh my goodness. Well, let's just make the best of it and do what we can. And then it happens again. And now you're going, man, we're in trouble. What is God doing? What's going on? Now, David seeks the Lord, and he seeks him humbly. Because you can't just come up to God and say, Hey, what is the deal? What are you doing? This is what some people do. They expect that God is going to manage everything in the universe and make everything happy so that they can ignore God and just live a nice, happy life. That's his job. Make everything nice so that I can ignore you. And then something bad happens. And people say, if there is a God, why did he let this happen? God is doing a terrible job of running the universe. Well, it's not God's job to enable people to live in ignorance and to ignore him. See, there's something wrong and God is humbling the entire nation to remember that everything God does is gracious. This is something I've been learning in the Bible, that everything God does is because he's gracious. Nobody deserves anything from God. So when God provides, that's gracious. The fact that your heart is beating and your lungs are pumping is because God is gracious. Everything God does, nobody deserves. And we forget that. And we think, hey, everything ought to run right on schedule. And what? What? This universe is broken. I'm outraged. We don't deserve anything. So really what God is doing is humbling the entire nation so that they suffer. And they start saying, okay, God, what do you want? Is there anything wrong that we don't know about? And see, this is when God tells them there is a problem. So when bad things happen to you, you can stop and ask God, are we okay? Is anything going on that I need to know about and I'm, I'm clueless? He's not against you because, see, when God humbles is because he wants to show grace. God gives grace to the humble, not to the, where is it? Got to have it. Come on. That isn't going to fly. But God humbles a nation so that he can show grace. Now, David seeks the Lord. And he finds that Saul has left a big mess for him to clean up. And this is because of Saul's unfaithfulness. This isn't written about anywhere else in the history of David and Saul, but we learn here that Saul tried to completely wipe out the gibeonites and as it says in verse 2 they were not of the children of israel they were a remnant of the amorites when israel came into the land of canaan god was giving him he says you have a purpose here and that is judgment on all the people they have filled up Their sins and iniquities, and they are devoted to destruction. And you are to wipe them out because their time has come. You know, when God promised the land to Abraham 400 years before, he says their iniquity, their sin is not yet complete. But 400 years later, these guys are ready to wipe out. And God has passed judgment. And he says, their time has come. So you're not to make any covenant with these people. You're to just wipe them out. But what the Gibeonites did is they deceived Israel. They showed up with worn-out clothing and moldy bread and they said, well, we've come from far off and we've heard about you and we want a covenant with you so that you don't destroy us someday. And they actually said, well, you might be living among us. How do we know? Our clothing is worn out and our water bags are old and we've come a long way and look, I haven't shaved. And And it says they didn't inquire of the Lord. They made a covenant of the Lord with them. And then three days later, they found out, oh my gosh, these guys live right here. And all of Israel is angry with their leaders. What did you do? And they said, we can't touch them because we made a covenant of the Lord with them. We swore by the Lord. So Joshua made the Gibeonites servants for the house of the Lord, to cut the wood and to get the water. And that's the Gibeonites, left over from a people devoted to destruction who had a covenant of the Lord. That is why they were not destroyed. So here's Saul. It says here in verse 2, right at the very end, his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. He had zeal. He had passion. And you know, this this is a quality that people admire nowadays. Oh, he's passionate, they say. That's cool. Even in the church, they'll say, oh, this guy is passionate. And I love that passion, zeal. And that's great, but zeal without knowledge is not good. Now, you know, Saul was zealous for Israel in a national way. And his idea was Israel for the Israelites. And he says, what are these guys doing here? We need to get rid of them. So he actually committed genocide. And he says, we're going to wipe these people out. Now, you can bet that the Gibeonites protested. And they said, what are you doing? You can't do this. We have a covenant of the Lord. An agreement that goes back 400 years. You can't do this. And Saul said, Sure, I can. I can do anything I want. Interesting thing. Because he didn't listen to God. God says, I want you to do this. And Saul did his own thing. And God said, Okay, that's it. Disobedience is as the sin of witchcraft. You're fired. Saul didn't listen to him. He stayed on the throne. And you know, if you don't listen to God, if you're not faithful to God, you're not going to listen to men. You're not going to be faithful to men. And that is the problem here. That Saul is so zealous, he's not listening to God, he's not listening to man, and he's wiping out a people who had a covenant of the Lord that God expected to last forever. So Saul is unfaithful to man He's unfaithful to God, and people are dying. Families are being ripped up. It's a mess. Now you think sin. You think, oh, well, I left my chewing gum under my seat. But this is what sin is. You think unfaithfulness to God. Who cares? Well, the Gibeonites care because they're dying. So this is a big, huge problem. Now, God really wants David to make peace. He wants David to make atonement. All right? That's in verse 3. Atonement, again, this is a word kind of like sin. It really doesn't have any weight or meaning to us. But the situation here is the Gibeonites do not bless the inheritance of the Lord, which is Israel. They say, Israel? They're a bunch of treacherous jerks who broke the covenant and they're killing us. Trust in Israelite? No, thank you. Give me a good, honest pagan. But not those people of God. I'm not going to bless those guys. And their God? Well, their God's covenants don't stick. So they're not blessing the Lord either. See? Now, what David is asking is what can I do to make it up with you so that there is no more hatred, no more resentment, to take away all that feeling of I was sinned against, you did horrible things to me, And now I'm okay. I'm happy again. You and me, we have a relationship now. See, that's atonement. Does everybody get that? Now, that's a big ask, isn't it? How do you remove murder? How do you remove treachery, unfaithfulness? So that everybody says, great, I'm happy with that. We're buds. I like you. How do you get there? Well, this is David's job. So, you know, David is listening to God. And he... David says, okay, there is a problem. God says there's a problem here. Now he's listening to men. And he says, what what would take all of this tragedy and suffering and hurt and make it right? What would that be? And you notice in verse four, they don't want money. And that's right. Because how much money is your mother worth? Industrial accident, your mother is killed. You sue the company. The company says, we'll give you 100 million pounds. Does that make you feel better? Most people would go, yeah, that's great. I miss my mom, but hey, 100 million, that's great. They take the money. But that's not going to fix bringing somebody back from the dead. Can't do it. So they say, No amount of money is going to make it right. Plus, we can't ask you to kill anybody in Israel. And they're kind of hinting here. We don't have the authority. So David says, tell me. And they say, let seven men from the house of Saul... Be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord right in Saul's hometown of Gibeah. Now, seven is a symbolic number of completeness. And the crime was that Saul wanted to completely wipe out the Gibeonites, all the families. And so they say, in justice, let Saul's family be wiped out. Now you could say, well, wait a minute. Saul's family didn't do anything. It was Saul that did that. Yeah, but see, here's the the larger issue of justice. That... Saul sinned against God and an entire nation, and the justice affects his own family. It's his sin affecting them, and this is the awful thing about sin. It doesn't just stay with me, it affects my family, it affects everybody around me. It affects the entire nation. And the punishment fits the crime. He wanted to wipe out an entire family. Let his family be wiped out. If that's hard, see, then you're realizing how bad sin is. How destructive unfaithfulness to God is. And David says... I will give them. He is bringing justice to make atonement and make everything right. Does everybody get that? Now, unlike Saul, David keeps faith with God and he keeps faith with man. I'm reading in verse 7. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiya, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzali the Maholathite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell, all seven, together, and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of barley harvest. Now look at this. Seven men of the descendants of Saul. They are put to death because they're related to Saul. It doesn't matter what they've done, how they've been fathers or sons or how they've done their work or anything. The only reason they are being put to death is because they're related to Saul. Does everybody get that? So if you're a descendant of Saul, your life is forfeit, except for one person. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. He fulfills all the qualifications for getting killed. He is a descendant of Saul. He's a man. He should be dead, but he's not because he has a covenant of the Lord. Interesting covenant. Did Mephibosheth sit down and negotiate something with David? Is he a good dealer? No. This covenant was made before he was born. His father loved David. He made three covenants with David because he loved him. He says, man, you're a guy after my own heart. I love you. I want us to make a a covenant so that you bless David. Me, I bless you. You bless my descendants. And David said, yes. And they swore three times. And then when David became king over Israel, he goes, hmm, covenant of the Lord. Is there anybody left of the house of Saul that I could bless, the house of Jonathan? And they find out, yeah, there's one son, Mephibosheth. He says, well, go get him. And Mephibosheth thinks he's gonna die because that's what an incoming dynasty does. You wipe out everybody else so nobody can claim the throne. And Mephibosheth is shaking, prostrate before Saul, just expecting the executioners to drag him away And David says, Don't worry, I'm giving you all the property of your grandfather Saul. All of his servants will serve you, but you will eat at my table for the rest of your life. And Mephibosheth says, Why are you doing this to a dead dog like me? And he says, Because I have a covenant with your father, and I'm going to honor that. I'm going to be faithful to God. And faithful to you. There you were, living in a place called nowhere. And you had nothing. And I'm going to make sure you get everything that belongs to you. And I'm going to bless you beyond that. Because you have a covenant of the Lord. Now, here comes this awful situation. And seven men of the descendants of Saul must die. And Mephibosheth is a descendant of Saul, but he has a covenant of the Lord. And so David says we can't touch him. Isn't that amazing? The difference between life and death is having a covenant of the Lord. That's what saves his life. Now the Gibeonites carry out the sentence against these seven men. They die in one day, and they're hung on poles. They're not hung with ropes like we think. They're these big posts, and they impale their bodies on these posts, and they're set up, and it's really a demonstration that these guys are guilty. It's a warning to others, but it's also a curse because it says in the law of the Lord, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So this is the worst possible way to die. But the most poignant thing here, amazing thing, is what happens afterwards. Let's read in verse 10. Now Rizpah, the daughter of Aiyah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day nor the beasts of the field by night. And David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiya, the concubine of Saul, had done. Then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the street of Beth-shan, where the Philistines had hung them up, after the Philistines had struck down Saul and Gilboa. So he brought up the bones of Saul, the bones of Jonathan his son from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan his son in the country of Benjamin in Tzela, in the tomb of Kish his father. So they performed all that the king commanded, and after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. So, Their mother, mother of two of the sons of Saul, uh, Rizpah, daughter of Aiyah. There they are, all seven, two of her sons, five of the cousins, and she sits on a rock, spreads out sackcloth. It's scratchy, it's uncomfortable. But that's the kind of cloth you have when you're mourning and you're humbling yourself before God. You're mourning. And the final outrageous indignity is to have animals eat the flesh, not give them a proper burial. Now, this law of God in Deuteronomy 21 Bodies hanged on a tree are cursed. The law also says they're supposed to be buried at twilight. They're not supposed to hang indefinitely. And that's why Jesus was taken down from the cross and buried. So to leave these Seven sons of Saul all hanging out there and not buried at all is a sign of how bad this was to break a covenant of the Lord, to show this unfaithfulness to God. It's so bad that they're left up there to be eaten of animals. That is the ultimate in degradation, in shame. Now, Rizpah has no power to change any of this. She can't fix what happened with the Gibeonites. She can't do anything for her sons. They're dead. She can't bring them back. She can't even do anything about the curse. But she can keep the animals off of them. And she does that. Now, you notice how long it was. From the beginning of harvest. That's the barley harvest in about March, April. Until the late rains poured on them from heaven. That's about September, October. She did that for six months. Can you imagine? Now, even keeping the animals away, the flesh is going to rot. And it's going to smell terrible. But she stays there and she waves off the birds. And that means at night, when the jackals show up and the dogs, she keeps them away. And she does that for six months. Months sitting on a rock, and her only cushion is scratchy sackcloth. Why does she do that? Does she do that for any kind of income, or to make a point, or to protest? You know, all she's doing. Is showing her sons love and honor. It's the only thing she can do. She can't even bury him. But she shows them faithfulness and love and honor and grace. And David hears about it. David hears about it and it moves him. He begins thinking. And he says, you know what? I'm going to show grace to Saul and Jonathan. And he gets their bones from the men of Jabesh Gilead. And he takes all the sons of Saul and he buries them in the tomb of Saul's father, Kish. Now that is an act of honor. He's honoring Saul. Does Saul deserve it? No, do any of these guys deserve it? No. But he's doing it. He's doing it to make it right to Rizpa. Can you imagine Rizpa talking to David at the end of all this? After six months of keeping the animals away and being out there, I imagine she would have said to David, Thank you. That means so much to me. That really makes it up to me. You see what David has done now? He's not only brought justice, but he's also brought grace. And he's made up for someone's suffering and loss. Here's a woman who lost her husband, his son, all of the descendants. She's devastated. But David is able to make it up to her, and she says, thank you. Now, I'm only reading that into the story. I imagine she would be very relieved. She does not have to sit on a rock anymore. So, you know, it's only then that God answers prayers and says, here's a good harvest, which means God is pleased. David has worked out everything. The Gibeonites are satisfied. Rizpah is satisfied. God is satisfied. He has made atonement. That whole mess is cleared up with justice and grace. Now stick with me. We're going to do this last part real quick. Look at verse 15. When the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants went with him down and fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. Then Ishbi Benab, who was one of the sons of the giant, whose way the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. But Abishai the son of Zeruiah came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Now it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibakai the Hushethite killed Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant. Again, there was war at God with the Philistines, where Elnahan, the son of jerah oregim only Gil can say these names. <laughs> so I'm disqualified. He... Killed the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet again, there was war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he was also born to the giant. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan the son of Shimeah, David's brother, killed him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David, by the hand of his servants. Now, again, we see these four incidents. War with the Philistines. And in the first one, David almost gets killed. And Abishai saves him. And all of David's men say, you know what? You're unique. You're irreplaceable. You're getting too old for this sort of thing. You cannot do this anymore. Unique and irreplaceable. Now, Abishai just gets right in there and kills this giant, takes him right on. And, you know, he wasn't intimidated by the size of this guy, by the weight of his weapons, which is interesting. Because, see, Philistines always think size and weight and power is going to win the battle. And David Proved that was not true. He says, you come to me with your power, your spirit, and all that junk. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, whom you have blasphemed. And this day, I'm going to take your head off and prove that there's a God in Israel, which he does. Now, look at David's men. They're not afraid of giants. Isn't that interesting? One giant in David's day paralyzes the entire Israeli army. They're afraid to do anything. Nowadays, it's like, what do you mean you're going to do picking on David? Doesn't matter how big the guy is. You know why? He knows there is a God in Israel, and the battle is the Lord's. If David can do it, I can do it. And so can three other guys. Do you notice? They do it. Now this guy, Sidakai, he's one of the mighty men of David, the 30, but he does it. But who are the other guys? David's nephew, right? He's not David, but he can take giants. They all can. You know why? They watch David. They go, if David can do it, I can do it. And none of them are afraid. Because they all learned the battle is the Lord's. Because there's a God in Israel. So look at this there is such a thing as sin, it is real, it destroys. Individuals, families, nations. We're watching the world disintegrate right now because of sin. It's not economics. It's not politics. It's not environmental. It is sin that is ruining the planet. It's unfaithfulness to God and not listening to him. That's why there's chaos. And you know, God is going to deal with sin in judgment, with justice. That is, every single person is going to be judged by God. Nobody's going to be left out. Nobody is too big for God to judge. Nobody is too small for God to judge because they fit the qualifications. You know that everybody is descended from Adam? God said to Adam, In the day you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will die. And he died. And everybody descended from Adam die. say, well, I didn't do anything. Yeah, but he did. And that's us. We're all dead. And we can prove it. Everybody dies. You go, well, duh. This is why. It's because of sin. And you know... Everybody's going to reap a harvest of sin. That's truly terrifying. You know, if you plant one seed, you get 30, 60, 100 times. Here we are, planting with our lives sin, and we're going to reap this harvest of judgment. We get glimmers in the Bible of what eternal punishment is. And if you think about it long enough, it will freak you out. It's real. Hell is forever. There's no getting out. Now, the gospel is that God has made an atonement. A satisfaction for sin. So that He's okay, and he makes everything right. Can you imagine? So that God himself says, I'm satisfied, I'm okay, I'm not angry anymore. Now, when God judges the world, only a covenant of the Lord is going to save you you need to receive that atonement, that covenant of the Lord. And you know, that's how you get a covenant of the Lord. You just receive it. Mephibosheth did nothing to make that covenant, but he did receive it. Can you imagine if he'd have said, nah, I don't want to eat with the king. I don't care. I like it here in Nowheresville. You know, we just drink beer and listen to Netflix all the time, and everything's cool. So why do I want to get involved with all that junk? So life goes on in Nowheresville, and he's drinking beer, and everything's great. And one day, you, you're a descendant of Saul? Yeah, I am. What of it? You're dead. Come with me. What? What? And he never knew what hit him. That's what it means to not receive a covenant of the Lord. You're dead. So see, this is the only thing that will save anybody, is to have a covenant of the Lord. That's the most important thing in life. Now, that covenant of the Lord is Jesus himself. Twice in Isaiah, God says, I will make you a covenant personally. And Jesus said on the night when he was betrayed, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. Shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And the only thing you can do is receive that covenant and say, yeah, that's for me. And if you've received Jesus, you have a covenant which he will honor and you will not die. Even though you fulfill all the qualifications for it. Because God is happy and satisfied, all sin has been judged on Jesus at the cross. All of the punishment and wrath and anger that God has because of unfaithfulness and not listening to him, all that wreckage that's been poured out on Jesus and God says, "Okay, I'm I'm done. I'm happy with that." So, do you have that covenant of the Lord? Have you received Jesus? Because if you have, you can relax. You can say, thank you, God. You have a hope. You have a future. And God is going to make up to you all of the suffering, everything that you've gone through, all the hard times. God's going to make it up to you just like David made it up to Rizpah. And you know, when God makes it up to us, it's gonna be perfect. It says, he's gonna dry all of our tears. That's kind of nice, isn't it? It says, come here. Come on, give me a pause. Now you know, when God does that, it's gonna be forever. You're not gonna walk away and then, pff, the memories hit. And it was crummy and awful, and she said this, and then I said that, but then she said that. <laughs> that dirty, stinky, lousy. He says, Come here. Dries away those tears. And he says, You okay? I go, Yeah. You see, that is coming. That is coming. And you don't have to think, oh, God can do that right now. So important is this death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. He makes everything right. So, if you've received Jesus, Your life is going to show it. See, this is the meaning of these four guys who can kill giants. Because, see, David could do it because God is with him. These four guys could kill giants because God is with them. And this is how you live life, because God is with you. He's living in you. You're going to live like Jesus. And you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. And you say, really? Imitate Paul? I'm not Paul. I can't do the shipwrecks and the beatings and, and all that stuff. I can't do that. Yeah, well, these guys weren't David either. And they're doing the same things that David is doing. Because God is with them. So, if you receive Jesus, you can live like Jesus because he is in you. And greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You can imitate Jesus. Now, you know, the devil believes that power and size wins battles. And you can prove that is not true. The battle is the Lord's, and he will work through you and help you. Does everybody get that? All right, let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you make covenants, and you keep them forever. And you don't go back and forth, and you break your word And you're unfaithful. No, you are faithful to a thousand generations. You do not change. And we praise you and thank you that you have made Jesus a covenant so that if anyone receives him, he's not going to die, but he's going to live with you. Thank you for that. Thank you that you are just and you are gracious. You know, if anybody wants to receive Jesus this morning, you can do it. If you know that you're a sinner, that you have been unfaithful to God, that you have ignored Him and not listened to Him, You know, you need a covenant of the Lord. If you want to receive Jesus, why don't you put up your hand and I'll pray for you? Okay. Anybody else? All right. Let's pray. And you pray, Lord. I need that covenant because I know I have sinned against you. And I pray that you would forgive me in Jesus' name and be that covenant. Thank you, Lord, that You are merciful and gracious. So thank you, Lord, that we can receive you. Please be at home in us. and be glorified in us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.